Move over, KFC. It's KFC Tenders. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Saturday to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And we are joined of a Saturday, typically and very gladly once again, by Nathan Miller. Tall guy Nathan, you are on the air, sir, and we're glad to be working with you once again. Good morning, Gary and Suzanne, and maybe a little bit in the air, too, kind of blowing around here. We've had some gusty winds last night and 40 oh. miles per hour, so... Ooh. Yeah, yeah, literally could be in the air right now. Who knows? Just uh, yeah. open up my jacket and create a wind sail. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> senor, having survived a hurricane 40 miles an hour, I blow my nose at 40 miles an hour. <laughs> Everybody's in the air. Yeah, oh we, we have goodness. lots of stories now that we've survived 100, and 100 mile an hour plus hurricane winds. So, yes, <laughs> 40 is a lot. 40 will topple some trees into some power lines and and uh, cause some damage so uh everybody be careful out, out there and of course down in florida i mean you're probably used to those winds that does nothing to you but here it's like if it gets above 20 miles per hour it's like some place is going to get like a branch or tree limb falling onto That's a power right. line or anything right. just to knock out the power to a certain grid which is yeah, usually my Auburn. grid if it goes above 20 miles an hour then you've got the, the kent auburn valley going hello hello is anyone out there? Can anyone hear me? <laughs> we had enough of that in Bothell, Suzanne, where we where we were blissfully domesticated together for a full decade. Yes. In Bothell, right out there by 522. Oh my goodness. There we were prone to those storms and the power would go down. The power would surrender in advance. Yes, it would. If we knew there were gonna be uh, winds above 20 miles an hour, the electricity would go out just in the anticipation of it. <laughs> I do remember that very fondly, very fondly. Uh, worst winter I can remember. Oh, is that winds, summer in Seattle? Yes. The winds picked up so much and we lost our power. We ended up putting our refrigerated items out on the balcony because it was so cold. It was colder than our refrigerator. Yes. So we, we didn't lose any food when we lost the power. Yeah, you need to be resourceful in these situations. Yes, absolutely. And I did want to ask you, Nathan, do you think uh, tonight is Coitons for the Phillies? Is this going to be it? Mm, I mean, my gut wants to say that the Phillies, uh, this will be the end. We're going to be handing the trophy over to the Astros. But, you know, Phillies have always, throughout this whole, you know, tournament, been surprising teams. And, getting hot when they need to be hot. So we could very well still see the Phillies, you know, win two in a row and take the series. I believe there's going to probably be a game seven, but I have a feeling that, you know, even if it's six games or seven games, it's going to be going over to the Astros. I think so. And of course, I'm hardly an Astros fan, but I do know that Dusty Baker is one of the true gentlemen of the game, and he's mm -hmm. been in it a long time for him to have a World Series ring would be a good thing for him. So I do have that bit of a rooting interest, though, if the Phillies win, fine by me. You can't count out any team that has Bryce Harper on the roster. And I'm just uh, pulling it up right now. It looks like Dusty Baker. Let's see. 
Uh, he hasn't won a series World Series as a manager, and right. I, he has the most wins among managers who have not won the World Series. Right. Someday we'll talk about an, an old manager named Gene Mock and the Phillies of 1964. But that's a, that's a story, story for another it. day. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's get to our guest. We are so happy to have a gentleman who is like a thousand guys in one. He really is. He's a man, a master impressionist. He's an actor. He's an audio narrator. He is a multi-talented man. Jim Meskimen is the one to whom I refer. Why don't you give him his mad props? This is the second time that we have had the privilege of interviewing him. The first time was on a Friday, May 20 of this year. And so if you would like to hear our Get to Know You interview, you can go into the KKNW archives under Manson Mitchell and select May 20 of this year to hear our first interview. This is our second interview with Jim Meskimen who is an accomplished actor, improviser, and voice artist whose work has been seen and heard on television, in movies, and on stage for many years. He studied theater and art in his early life and graduated from the University of California, Santa Cruz with a bachelor's degree in fine art after working extensively in oil painting, drawing, and lithography while also working in the theater. He grew up in a theatrical family. His mother is Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated actress Marion Ross of TV's Happy Days. And he and his wife live in Los Angeles and have been fixtures in the improvisation theater community in both New York and Los Angeles. I'll be sure to give out his website information at the bottom of the hour break. In the meantime, welcome for the second time to Manson Mitchell, Jim Meskimen. <laughs> Thank you. What a nice introduction. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's good to talk to you guys again. May 20th, was it? May 20th of this year. And Seems like a long time ago. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. We've been thinking about you, wanting to have you back to get a second bite of the apple, as it were, Gary, <laughs> the apple. Because yeah. one of the things that uh, we were interested in was the idea of New York. In August, Gary and I made our first trip over to New York City together and mm. went to three different places. And so we thought, well, what a great place to open, New York City. That's New right. York City. We wanted to go to uh, see the great sights of New York. And so we went three times. We went to Eddie's, Giuseppe's, and Luigi's. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere nice. there we... <laughs> I've been uh, I've been going back and forth from New York a little bit this in the last couple of months. So uh, that's it's, it's a great place to be and a great time of year to be there, actually, right about now. Uh, we really enjoyed it a lot. I have to say, Jim, and, and welcome to our show again for the second time. We enjoyed you so much the first time we knew that we would meet again on air. I was trying to get to Kearney, New Jersey. We were on the New Jersey Turnpike, and we had to get off one particular exit. Our hosts were talking us through via iPhone. How did they do this in covered wagon days? I don't, I know. don't know there, but we did manage to make it over there. And uh, my host, Carl, said, you know, Gary, forget about your manners. Forget about you. I know you want to be polite. And I just, got, just set that aside. You got to get off at this exit, and the cars are all going somewhere. So don't worry about being polite. Just angle yourself in, because I had a couple of lanes to get across to get to Kearney, New Jersey, where we would stay for five nights and then make the three treks into New York City from there. And I tell you, Jim, I think you will relate to this. 
I turned to my right, looking over Suzanne. She was riding shotgun, and I looked over her shoulder, and I saw the Manhattan skyline with my own eyes for the first time. And I have been telling people ever since, you can only see the Manhattan skyline with your own eyes for the first time exactly once. And when you do, it's like, I, I swear to you, it's like Dorothy stepping away from Kansas and into Oz. And here it's full technicolor and all of this going on. It's just like it widens your perspective on life to be in the Big Apple. Yeah, I think that's true. That's absolutely, absolutely true. Because uh, now you've, you've waited a good long time to get to New York City for the first time. True. Uh, so all your life now, you've been exposed to uh, secondhand stories in New York. You've watched movies about New York. You've seen New York in posters. You've, you've had, uh, you know, uh, it's all been filtered through the experience of other people and other media. And then yeah, I totally understand then after, you know, all this time and all these exposures, then all of a sudden you find out, oh, it's a real place and it's over there. Then that's a, that's a mind bearer. I felt that way when I went to uh, uh, one time I got sent to South Korea to do a, a series of commercials. And, you know, you, you leave from Los Angeles on an airplane and I. I, I had a window seat and, and it was during daylight hours and it was a long flight, but not so long that I felt like I had to, to, you know, take my attention off the window. And, you know, you crawl up the California coastline and you just keep crawling up and then you start to go on to another part. It's sort of frozen and then you come down You're like, oh, I see. Once you get to Korea, it's just over there. For me, it was always like Asia was like a different universe entirely and that you would have to be. I don't know, like a like a caterpillar going through some sort of transformation. You'd have to enter this other universe by going through some catharsis that was, you know, unimaginable. Uh, and and places like New York are that way. It's like it exists so strongly in the world of movies and books and imagination and references and uh, and to actually see it, I, I think, must have been really incredible for you. It really was. The first time we went there, we went on a Friday night to Times Square, walked around Broadway and 42nd Street. And if you've been there fairly recently, you know that they closed off those streets. They are now pedestrian right. only. Now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the center of the street, it turns out to be vendors and entertainers and things like that. When you were in New York, I'm assuming that was part of your stomping grounds because you were working in the theater district. Am I correct about that? Well, I did work in the theater district sometimes, but really <clears throat> talk about stomping grounds. I mean, Manhattan, all of Manhattan was was my I stomped around all of it. <laughs> and and all any right. and any working actor, you know, uh, does that because uh you know, you're you're going on interviews for commercials and that's in a certain district and uh or you're, you know, you're doing familial things and uh, taking your child out for a walk in, in, a, in a baby carriage in another area. So, but yeah, I, I, I knew New York very well. I was not a Broadway actor, so I didn't, um, I didn't spend tremendous amounts of time in Midtown. Uh, although I worked in Midtown doing other things, you know, it, it's, it's marvelous because it's a not, it's not a one industry town. And, right. and so you, you have a huge variety of activities going on, a huge variety of people, races, nationalities, um, people in different financial straits or, or excesses. And, and so it, it's the variety, I think, that makes it so intoxicatingly attractive. And I was just there on Broadway to see, um, we went out to see uh, The Music Man, 
my yeah. wife and I specifically, we had an opportunity to stay at a friend's place on Sugar Hill in Harlem. And then we had an uh, opportunity to take advantage of Sutton Foster's um, uh, generosity. We got to uh, get her um, uh, seats for the, the show. She has, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, guest seats for every performance. And I'm friends with her husband. So we got those nice seats. And it was just great. We, it was a fantastic show. Everybody in the audience was there to enjoy it. Uh, the the players, the actors are having such a good time because it's a hit. They're having fun. Uh, they know that their audience is going to be screaming and yelling and, and having a ball. So it's like, you know, this is just, there's no risk here. It's all going to be perfect. And everyone had a really great time. And so, if it was uh, music, man, probably people were singing along, too, somewhere in that audience. Along, clapping along, certainly, yeah, <laughs> singing along when appropriate. Uh, yeah, it and was, did you live in New York for a time? Oh, yeah, I lived there 10 years. That's where I got my 10 start. 10 years, oh, wow. Okay. All 10 right. very but, rapid years. Which borough? Uh, in Manhattan. I lived in, in Brooklyn for about five minutes, and then I lived in Manhattan most of the time. Yeah. Okay. Oh, very good. Fantastic. Very good. Yeah. I met various people. Not to link, we got so much to talk about with we Jim Meskimen, but we I do. did want to say that that well, I'll I'll put it to you this way: aesthetically, you're you're a man of many talents. You're a man with cinematic as well as stage sensibility. His voice, you got that down. Do you feel, Jim, that the portrayals of New York City? With one film in particular sticking out in my mind, Woody Allen's Manhattan. Is it better in your view? Is it truer to life in New York to portray it in classic black and white terms because of, of the grit and the muscle and the importance of the city? Does filming in black and white do something special for the city even today? Well, I think it lends, it, it, it's a great way to present New York and Woody Allen and others have, have certainly proven that, you know, it's, a, it's enjoyable to, New York is a great uh, city in terms of its lines and its architecture. And, uh, you know, it is, it is slightly monochromatic when you go there. <laughs> People tend to dress uh, in grays and blacks and whites and uh, it just it seems to blend in pretty well, and then you burst into Central Park, and it's a, it's a wash with color. So that's a different mood. But you know, it, it stands up to all kinds of presentations. New York City, uh, it's uh, wow. You, that's a really good question, though, because it it does look beautiful in black and white. Because so much of its allure and attraction are those magnificent structures, which, for all intents and purposes, are black and white. Uh, they have you know little moments of color, but that's not what they're about. They're about the clarity of the design and the the contrast between those those elements. That's very well said. New York is a, as uh, Shirley McLean pointed out in one of her books, New York is a serious city. You can look at other cities and see them as rather uh, comparatively light, perhaps even frivolous or tawdry there. But New York, Chicago. Even Las Vegas, she mentioned. These are serious towns. Yeah, I, I, she would know. <laughs> well, when we, uh, since we were just in New York uh, for the first time together uh, in August, we were interested in just opening with that. But we also want to talk about Washington, D.C. and Gaslit. Very interesting that you are portraying Senator Edward Gurney who I really didn't know much about. And so I, and neither like, did I, 
I did a little look up on him. And if, of all places, he's from Florida, which was very interesting. But I wanted to have you tell us how things were going with Gaslit, which is on stars. Yeah, it's an interesting limited series about the Watergate era, as you probably know, and, uh, Martha Mitchell and uh, John Mitchell, her husband, played by Sean Penn. And, uh, you know, it, it, this period is one that is really the period of Watergate is one that um, a lot of creative people are looking at these days and people are interested in history. And I think it's um, it's great to study it and, and to dig deep on it. Uh, and that's what, what the uh, creators of this show did. They took a particular set of uh, incidents relating to the Watergate period and uh, evoked uh, this kind of drama out of it. You know, and it's I think it's a really fruitful kind of area to look in because the characters are are all larger than life. Martha Mitchell in particular prided herself on being outspoken and somewhat larger than life. And then there were these tumultuous act, actions going on uh, in the government and the various spy organizations that were operating, still are operating. So it it's, makes very, very good drama. And the director is a guy named Matt Ross, who's not a not a well-known director, but he should be. He's a terrific, terrific director for actors. Uh, and he's an actor himself, so he speaks <laughs> he speaks the actor's shorthand pretty well. So I, I, I enjoyed working with him, and I know that Sean and Julia enjoyed working with him, too, because all those scenes in it are, are just beautifully orchestrated and uh, fun to watch. And they, they, they bring forth the emotions that I think uh, really should have come out of those scenes. Um, you know, it's it's one of these periods that you, you mentioned that uh, you were unfamiliar with Edward Gurney. I was unfamiliar with Edward Gurney as well. I had to do my research on it. And I believe, yeah, he was a, a uh, um, senator from Florida, but he came originally from, from uh, New York State. So that made for kind of an interesting... Uh, analysis of of his accent and stuff that I had to kind of kind of try to figure out. Um, but I, you're more familiar with some of the big bombastic characters like Sam Irvin and these other colorful <laughs> uh, scallywags that were uh, being interviewed in the, well, the Senate hearings and so forth. But Gurney was not one I really knew too much about. Uh, but apparently he had uh, quite a bit to do with things behind the scenes. It just wasn't on TV. Interesting. Yeah. What I found interesting about Senator Gurney, and I can't figure out what the motive would be. He graduated from Harvard Law School. Okay. All mm -hmm. right. There you go. Cream of the crop. And then later he goes to Duke Law School. And I said to Suzanne, did he skip a class or something? Why would you graduate from Harvard Law School? You've got a, a no doubt a thriving practice in New York City. And then you go to Duke Law School afterward. That just seems like a strange trajectory for one's career. Wow, that's a little deeper, uh, deeper than I dug on on Mr. Kearney. That's very interesting. Maybe there was a particular branch of law that was offered at Duke that wasn't offered at Harvard. I don't know. I'm, I'm not being a lawyer. I have no clue. You know, <laughs> our, our, our listenership is um, influenced very much by the baby boomers. And mm. so we uh, you're speaking to, you know, our audience, our time. And as young people... You know, I can remember all those goings on of Watergate, uh, even though I, I was not that old at the time, but just, you know, kind of looking at it and, and wondering what was going to happen. 
And, and I can, I can recall I was working one summer and my boss called me into his office and said, you got to watch this on TV here. This is history in the making. And, and I said, okay. And so my afternoon <laughs> was boss. Spent watching TV and getting paid to do it too. <laughs> but, um, you know, all these years later, there are a few historical events that I was glad that I was taking a look at at the time that they were occurring, even though I couldn't tell how big it was going to be. And uh, one of the things I didn't find out about Edward Gurney was what his role was in Watergate. That didn't come out in any of the reading. He apparently was indicted for embezzling or fraud or something later on, but it, it didn't have to do with Watergate. What what no. was it that what how was what was he doing in Gaslit? Well he was part of the Senate Senate committee that was investigating Watergate. So he was on the Republican side. Okay. Uh so as is portrayed, I I don't know too much about the actual history of it, but I know that in our show he was portrayed as someone who was trying to stonewall the investigation. So and that's why he, you know, Sort of in, in in the show, and whether it's true, true or not, I really don't know. In the show, he conspired or co-conspired with uh, Martha Mitchell's husband, John Mitchell, to throw Martha under the bus and oh. and point her out as being a a loose cannon and a, and a damaged person and an unreliable person. So that was his job in our little show. Now, whether that was the job in real life, I really don't know. Because the thing about history is, you can take these characters like. We're very used to seeing uh, things from the BBC, but these wonderful British shows where they talk about Mary, Queen of Scots and, uh, you know, Henry VIII and these characters. And they portray them doing whatever, saying whatever they want. <laughs> it's like, well, it's all fair game now. We can have we can have Henry VIII, uh, you know, riding off on a horse and cutting off somebody's head. It doesn't matter if it ever happened. Nobody's going to raise their hand. And and a little bit that's happening with Watergate, I think, and with recent events in history, or even to go a little further back, World War II, where we go, well, you know, Roosevelt, Roosevelt's a character. We can have Roosevelt doing whatever. <laughs> and it's it's a little bit uh, beside the point uh, as far as uh, the accuracy is concerned. Certain shows, of course, have to cleave to a high level of accuracy, like a documentary, and right. there are great, great right. documentaries going on. But dramatizations... Like I worked on another uh, uh, show called Blonde, a film called Blonde, which is doing pretty well in the uh, independent film area. And that's about Marilyn Monroe and John F. Kennedy. Mm. And they dramatized things in that movie that there were no cameras around. There was no written record. So it's speculation. And that's what Mm -hmm. the arts do. They give us an opportunity to to speculate and imagine about things. And uh, that can be that can be very entertaining. It can also be. you know, kind of give you ideas about, well, what might it have been? And and do we agree and don't we agree and start conversations and so forth? But it's all sort of, it's sort of open with, with people who are celebrities like George W. Bush. I mean, there's movies about uh, George W. Bush that have uh, a very tenuous uh, hold on reality <laughs> or even worse, they don't hold on to it at all. So. <laughs> we all We all remember the difficulty he had in explaining why fool me once shame on you fool fool me twice they're shades fool that you just shouldn't go around fooling people <laughs> that's right that's right 
very, very famous grasping around for what, what that is, which we can all identify with, you know, everybody yes, can, can, you know, I don't you know, know how many times I've started to tell a joke, for example, I'm not, my, I'm, I, work, I work in comedy a lot, but I'm not a joke teller, you know, and I'll start to, t- to tell a joke and then about halfway through, I'll go, gosh, oh, okay. I forgot to mention he, his car. <laughs> <laughs> And that is the human predicament <laughs> as it relates yeah. to comedy and to voice work. You know, Jim, Suzanne and I decided for uh, pre-Halloween when our show landed during the week, just before Halloween. And speaking of landings, we decided to play the infamous 1938 broadcast about the Martian landing done by mm-hmm. Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that, and this is a true part of the story, it's part of the backstory, they needed to have somebody in authority speak to the American people. Roosevelt was president. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. And there was a radio voice actor who did a dead-on impression of Mr. Roosevelt. But uh, it was decided that was a little too dicey to be having the president, apparently speaking, during this fictional broadcast that was terrorizing people across the country, particularly in New York and New Jersey, but elsewhere as well. And so they said, okay, we're going to rewrite it. The message is going to be from the Secretary of the Interior. And the guy they had for it, the, the voice he did was Roosevelt. So right, I've heard that you story. finish yeah. it yourself. Yeah. So here's yeah. the Secretary of the Interior. My fellow Americans. <laughs> <laughs> you want to overtake The Martian landing has been, has occurred. What was it? Grover's Mill. Grover's Mill. Yes, yeah. Grover's Mill. Which we visited. Yeah. Carl took us out to Grover's Mill. They have these monolithic commemorations of the fictional event as described in the broadcast. And it's by a pond in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Beautiful little hamlet of a town. And they do remember it. They're proud of their connection to that broadcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's tourism right there, baby. <laughs> your little yeah. town, your little town's going to have a steady influx of people who want to buy a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> have the episodes of Gaslit that you were in already aired or are they coming up, Jim? Oh, yes. They've all aired. Uh, they, they've aired. Were, okay. they dropped uh, starting in April. So it's been a while. Yeah, they're all they're all able to be seen on uh, on stars on and stars. probably. Uh, possibly Hulu at this point. I don't know. It's been ah, a little while. So sometimes okay. Hulu in, inherits these shows. Okay. I would like to make a hairpin turn. You have a question to no, ask? No, no, no. Go ahead. Make your turn. Hairpin <laughs> turn for Jim Meskimen we're, here. We're coming we're up gonna... on a break, but go ahead and make your turn. Okay. Well, we'll we might go into the break just a tad late, but I did want to ask you. See, I grew up Catholic and I had many friends who grew up Mormon and others who grew up Jewish. But I never met anyone who grew up Cunningham. And so <laughs> when I think about you, Jim, in that how your yeah. wonderful mother, Marion Ross, saint and idol of pop culture that she is to millions and millions of people. Did you feel at times, Jim, as though you were growing up as a kind of adjunct to the Cunningham TV family? Well, you know, looking back on it, you could look at it that way. But uh I was so enmeshed in the actual reality of what was going on. I think I didn't have, I didn't have that fanciful uh, a look at it. And, uh, and, you know, being Cunningham or being a pseudo Cunningham, uh, I wouldn't elevate it to the category of a religion, but, but still it was a, uh, it was a great time for our family because it was a time of, of growth and expansion. When my mother's career took off, uh, it meant a lot to our survival, you know, 
and our ability to take advantage of things in life. So I'm very grateful to her. I know she's very grateful for the opportunity. It really kind of, I think it exceeded her expectations a lot. I think she was just trying to make a living as an actress, which she had done since her uh, she was about 19 years old. But um, to to become someone who was a symbol of something so important as, uh, you know, as Marion Cunningham turned out to be was something that she couldn't have predicted. Uh, and yet she had set up her life perfectly to take advantage of such an opportunity. And just before we do go to break, let me put a bow on it here, Jim. I agree with everything you just said. He would he would be the one who would know, but I certainly can see that perspective. In addition to which, something occurred to me years later. Looking at the success of Happy Days, and it was an extremely successful show and is still watched today. At the time Happy Days was in production, look at what was going on in the world. You had Watergate. You had the ultimate tragedy of Vietnam, the loss in Vietnam unfolding. All of this, the, the political difficulties, economic difficulties in America, all of that going on. It's no wonder that nostalgia got to be big business, especially in that era, because when you watched an episode of Happy Days, you were reaching backward in time to an America that you could understand and appreciate. That's what I took from it. I think that's very true. I think it's very true. Wow. Uh, yeah, even though I, you know, was uh, 13 or 14 when it started and then it ran for 11 seasons. So you, you're right. It covered an enormous swath of history and changes and upheaval, including, I know, Nixon resigned during that time and the Beatles broke up. I mean, a lot of stuff happened. <laughs> and uh, And I was going through adolescence, which was even bigger than both those events to me. So, uh, yeah, people were looking back at a simpler time. And, you know, entertainment works best, I think, when it's very simple. Uh, the more complex it gets, particularly if it's comedy, it doesn't necessarily get any better. It just kind of gets gets different and more confusing. But Happy Days was a very simple entertainment uh, show, simple characters that were easy to understand and, and, and enjoy. And that's why I think it's a, it's, it continues to be a classic. Let us take our break, our one break of the hour. We're talking to Jim Meskimen, master impressionist, wonderful voice actor. He does comedy. He does straight up acting. He does it all. And uh, say hello to the colonel for us the next time you see him, Jim. Uh, well, we'll I definitely be- will. Uh, I'll, put, I'll put a good <laughs> word in for you. Maybe you can get, a, get yourself <laughs> a free bucket of chicken. Oh, my goodness. That's worth it right there. <laughs> we got a $5 coupon because our order was late at a restaurant yesterday. I thought we won the lottery. So <laughs> that's even better. We're talking with Jim Meskipin. We we are Manson Mitchell. And you'll hear the name more and more, Jim Meskipin. It's one of those unique names. And he deserves his rightful place in today's pop culture because of the great things he does and so much of it and such variety. Give us a couple of minutes and we'll be right back here on AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. 
Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcome Mary Lee LeBay to talk about the practice of past life regression therapy. How do past lives influence this one, and how many lifetimes do we have anyway? On Saturday, Bill Huffman and Rod Graves join us from the Luray Caverns in Virginia, the largest and most popular caverns east of the Mississippi. 450 million years old and fascinating. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Jim Meskimen. Second time that Jim Meskimen's been on and we enjoy talking with him. This is a man who's an accomplished actor, improviser, and voice artist. And his work has been both seen and heard on television, in movies, and on stage for many years. I had looked up uh, how many TV shows and how many movies he's been in. Too many to name. So you have to go to his website and find that information out. Jim, if people do want to find out more about you and your work, I know you've got things on YouTube, you've got websites. Please let our listeners know how they can find out more about you. Well, yeah, I I do feed social media quite a bit. I have a YouTube channel that I've been uh, pumping uh, content into since before we called it content. We just called them videos. And uh, every every day I put up at least one, at least one, maybe two or three different videos uh, that are meant to be fun and entertaining for you. So that's if you just go to YouTube and type in Jim Pressions, Jim Pressions, like impressions with Jim, uh, you'll find me pretty easily. Also, I have an online workshop on how to be a working actor. Now, I've been a working actor, as you mentioned so kindly, for about 35 years, almost more than that. And uh, I've learned a lot in, in my, my time. And I, I learned a lot from my mom, Marion Ross, and stuff that I put to work uh, to keep my career going and keep moving forward. And uh, I paid attention to it. And I get a lot of people that say, hey, how do I want to be an actor. I have a friend, I have a son or daughter that wants to be an actress. What can I do? So I put together a series of videos that anybody can watch. And it's the very down-to-earth, practical nuts and bolts things about how to be uh, an actor professionally, how to really work at it, how to keep it growing. And so that's at jimworkingactor.com. That's the easiest place to find it, jimworkingactor.com. And then I'm on Instagram at jimpressions, and uh, my website is jimmeskimen.com. So 
Also, I've become a kind of a TikTok sensation. I had a a viral TikTok uh, video, uh, which has gotten over 7 million views in the last uh, couple of weeks. And that's made doing impressions of, of Robin Williams and, and Patrick Stewart as well, I believe, and, and George W. Bush and Robert De Niro, I think is in there. I think they're all in there. You got to squeeze them all in quickly in these TikToks. Uh, anyway, you can check me out there, Jim Meskiman on TikTok. Oh, I'm glad you're doing that, Jim, because I know that when, last time we talked, you said um, that the voices do change. Like you, you go with different people at different times, depending on, um, you know, what's happening. As you said, some people just go out of favor and you don't want to do their voices anymore. But you've got somewhere between 75 and 100 that you do. So it would be interesting to go and, and look at those at, at Jim Pre- Jim Pressions or and TikTok where you could run through a lot of those very quickly. And I recommend people do that for the fun of it. One of the things that you said last time when we were talking about acting itself, uh, you said it's good to go with people you admire. And, hmm. and I think part of your lasting in business is not doing a lot of unsavory characters, not doing a lot of, you know, demonic kinds of stuff, really negative stuff. But the fact that you really are entertaining people with interesting people and and doing the voices so spot on. Gary, you wanted to ask him about one in particular. Well, uh, thank you for that, Suzanne. I have no idea to whom you referred. Oh, there it is. You wrote it down. Well, that's actually you know, very helpful to me. Work with us, here. Work air. with us. Thank you. Okay. What's that? Martians invading? Well, why don't we go to the interior secretary? The gentleman, you have worked at... Now, this is something... I would think this would take some research and a lot of practice. So what else is new for Jim Meskimen there, but... How did you get your mind and your voice around a guy like Phil Donahue? I don't know a lot of people who do Phil Donahue. Well, neither do I. Gosh, you know, I luckily uh, I went to YouTube. I looked at old, uh, old performing old shows of the Phil Donahue because you know, back in the eighties when he was so hot in the nineties, I wasn't watching a lot of TV, so I had to go and do my research and uh, and I uh, found why he had an incredible show. It, when when you go back and look at those old Phil Donahue shows, you just I my eyes were just glued to the suits and the, <laughs> and the hairstyles. Uh, you're referring to a a show that is going to come out in just a few weeks, a limited series called Welcome to Chippendales, which I uh, was proud oh. to be part of, and uh, I did play Phil Donahue in an episode where the Chippendales dancers are introduced to America via that that show he had. And uh, they were looking for a Phil Donahue, and I auditioned, and uh, <laughs> I, I had a great time. It was uh, it, it was great to be in a uh, you know they rented a, a a hall down in one of the local colleges down here to to portray his studio, and they just filled it with women uh, who were dressed in the time period. And I think it was like 1992. And boy, you think well, 1992 is not that long ago. It's pretty long ago. <laughs> <laughs> this looked like yeah. looked like yeah. a costume party. I, yeah, I, the women, but it was gorgeous. The, the women, that style is is a great style. It just doesn't happen to be at all current. So the women had their hair swept over to the side and huge hair and huge shoulder pads in their jackets. And I just looked around and went, I rem- I remember I was here. I saw these women, yeah. uh, and they are beautiful. It's just it's just not current. 
Was this show out of Chicago? I believe so. Yeah. I don't know if it was the entire time or if he actually moved to New York, but for a time early on. He was at Grover's Mill for a while, just for a short period. And Grover's Mill too, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I lived in Chicago and I used to catch Phil Donahue occasionally. And the best episode was the very first time that he interviewed Marlo Thomas. His wife. To oh, be yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. On that show, they were just outrageously flirting with one another. Yeah, and they the were... entire audience <laughs> was watching it. They were crushing on each other pretty good. Yeah, they were. They lightning were. in a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> he made a trip out to Los Angeles one time and did uh, maybe he did the week in L.A. And I watched it one afternoon. I can still remember this like it was yesterday. I had to get my news of uh, what was going on with my fraternity brother and his wife by watching Phil Donahue. Turns out they had split up and I had no idea that was going on. I was in a fraternity chapter at Cal State Fullerton with this gentleman, met his wife uh, through that connection. And they had a story because it was about how did you work it out? How did you get back together to avoid divorce, the things that couples do? And one couple stands up and they offered their story. And it was my fraternity brother and his wife there. And I go, well, I'm glad they're still together and whatnot. Thanks, Phil, for providing that. <laughs> you, you, you just never knew what you were going to get with him. I guess what I, I love about Phil Donahue is that he was not afraid to tackle points of view opposite his own, make mm. his statement and let the other guy, in one case, William F. Buckley Jr., for example, to have their weighty say but he got it out there to the people in a way that everyone could receive however they would individually that's a service to humanity right there i agree with you because communication is uh, is the solution for all problems and if we you know truncate or uh, inhibit communication too much then uh, we don't understand each other very well so he, he really did a service there you're right well, he was also working at a time, I believe, when fair and balanced was still the law of the land in, in the uh, Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. If you were going to present one side, you had to present the other side in the news. And after that went away, then I'm now you have this huge division um, that you didn't used to have. And, and yeah. that was that was occurring. The the Roger Ailes conversation with Richard Nixon would have been during that seventies time, but there was still that period of time with CNN and and other places where um, the news was going to be balanced. The information was going to be he said she said or he said he said, and you could make up your own mind as to how you felt about it, as opposed to somebody else making up their mind for you. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to get. One a thing, uh, Jim, that you said, you said Welcome to Chippendales was coming up in November. Where, That's where right. That, I believe it's going to be released to be aired? on the know? 21st, I think, on uh, okay. Disney Plus, I think. Excellent. Well, I wanted to get that out there for our yeah. listeners as well. If you have Disney Plus, Welcome to Chippendales will be airing November 21. And I wanted to make sure that we said that for anybody who or wants Disney, to catch or you. Disney, uh, Disney Poo, as it is pronounced in France. In in France, right. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Have you ever heard the story of, uh, I should put it another way, did you get to make the acquaintance of Hal Holbrook with all the success? I met him once. Mark Twain? I, I, I met him once, but I didn't. I didn't get to. I didn't really get to know him, though. No, but uh, I admire him a lot. Uh, I saw his 
his uh, grandson performed Shakespeare in our neighborhood one time down at the uh, community center. And we were like, wow, they were doing uh, Henry the Fourth, part one and two. And we're like, really? They're doing both parts? <laughs> it's a seven-hour show? But uh, we went down and uh, they did an abbreviated version of those two plays. And Hal Holbrook's grandson, whose name escapes me, but it's Holbrook is the last name, uh, who, who resembles his grandfather a, a little bit. Uh, only, of course, you know, stronger and more robust and very youthful. I think he might have been 20 at the time, and uh, he did a fantastic job. I know my mom knew Halba Holbrook a little bit uh, and worked with him, I'm sure, on something uh, over the years. But, uh, yeah, what a what a, what a a great uh, gift. Talk about gifts to, to culture. His uh, Mark Twain Tonight, which anybody can watch on YouTube, is uh, just a stunning performance. It's, it just gets more... I appreciate it more the older I get. I need to watch it again because it was brilliant. I remember watching it as a teenager and it was incredible. Then I took a class. It's part of the reason I brought this up. I took a class in English literature in college and the professor was a specialist, rather an expert on Mark Twain. Mm. He actually went to a performance of Mark Twain tonight. Can you imagine this, Jim? This should never happen to you, sir. And I don't see it happening. There wouldn't be much probability because you're so good at what you do. And so was Hal Holbrook. Nevertheless, this professor approached Hal Holbrook and informed him that he had located a scratchy old copy of Mark Twain's voice. It might be the only recording in existence. Oh. And having listened to Mark Twain, he informed Hal Holbrook to his face that he got Mark Twain's voice wrong, that it was nice. either too much of this or too little of that, whatever it was, but he critiqued Hal Holbrook to his face <laughs> after seeing Mark Twain tonight. You can only imagine the joy with which Hal Holbrook received this news. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I, I get, I get my version of that, which is, uh, you know, in the, the impressions that I put up, I put up a lot of videos on YouTube and uh, I try different things and I try different celebrities. I put the names up on a wheel and I spin the wheel and I, I read a, a fortune cookie in the voice of a different celebrity. I do that every day amongst the other things that I put up. Anyway, I get people writing in, commenting and saying, uh, that's good. But, uh, you know, his voice is a little slower and a little deeper and a little blah, blah, blah. They have their input on it, which is always amusing because uh that's like saying that a person's voice always stays the same on, under every circumstance and uh, whatever character he plays, it's exactly the same recipe. And it's not the way it is. If you if you listen to recordings of yourself or, or anybody really in different in different uh, applications, like giving a speech or talking intimately or a phone conversation or playing a character in a, <laughs> a film, it's all over the place. It's, it's, it's not nailed down. So uh, in the case of uh, this uh, story about Hal Holbrook, which is a great story, I'm going to remember for sure. So this guy listened to a scratchy old recording, which was probably done, if I, if I know my, my uh, audio history, probably recorded on what was called a, a wire recording, where the recording, the vibration was actually contained on a wire, a physical wire. Yeah. Uh, we have no idea what that really sounded like. Uh, and you can hear adjustments that are made technologically to these old recordings to make them sound with, you know, uh, have a little more fidelity to the to the original. But and we can't really tell some old scratchy thing. It would be like saying, uh, you know, your voice when you scream in a high wind, that is what your voice really sounds like. And it's just not accurate. Well, you know, interestingly, 
Mark Twain was not around to give his approval on Hal Holbrook's <laughs> doing his voice. So Hal Nor Holbrook should he have been. had a lot of license. On the other hand, Jim Meskimen was around to get the approval of Robin Williams in order to do the Blue Genie. Very That's different. True. You yeah. actually had Robin Williams listening to your voice and saying, yes, it'll be okay for Jim to do my voice for Disney. Is that yes, right? That's right. That's right. That's absolutely. Thank you. That's very kind of you to bring up. Yes, he was still alive. Uh, this was probably around 2003, 2004, when they were looking for someone to do some of these ancillary recordings for video games and parades and, I don't know, mall openings. I don't know the applications. So, yeah, Robin, uh, I was very, very honored that uh, that I that he chose me, that I, I wouldn't be offensive to him. And when I, you know, I think that comes from a place of respect. And uh, uh, when I, when I do characters that I admire, I, I, I'm not trying to, to take the piss as the British say, I'm trying to honor them and, uh, and just sort of continue their personality, you know, and, and augment it a little bit. So um, I, I was, I continue to be kind of proud of that fact that, uh, that he heard you it. Should and said, should okay. You should be somebody like Robin Williams, who was so beloved that he would actually listen to you doing him and then say, yes, this man can, can do the blue genie voice. I, I give my permission. I think that is quite the honor. That's monumental. Um, uh, a little side note here to our non-Anglophiles there. When someone says taking the piss in the UK, they mean getting drunk. It means something <laughs> different over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'll just venture this opinion, Jim. Did you get to see many episodes of a TV show, short live though it was, unfortunately, called The Crazy Ones? With Robin no, Williams? I never did. I uh, I never did. Uh, I know it was on, and it was his last uh, TV series, and um, didn't stay on very long. But uh, I had some friends that were guest stars on it, but I never saw it myself. And a cast well, member, Hamish Linklater, was in right. Oh. Yeah, who I worked with on uh, Gaslit. Yeah, he played played Jeb Magruder. And we worked together on another show one time long ago. I said, when I saw Hamish uh, at Universal when we were working on Gaslit, I said, I feel like I've worked with you before. And he said, yeah, I feel like I've worked with you. And it took a little bit of digging, but we had been on a show called Happy Family that he was also a member of the cast of. And when when I realized... With John Larroquette, I realized, I said, Hamish, I think it was this show called Happy Family. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I got fired from that show. <laughs> okay, let's talk about something else. <laughs> that that show, The Crazy Ones, uh, it breaks my heart to think about the effort that went into it. It was actually filmed. Very well done. It was treated yeah. in a slick, cinematic way that I thought made the show elegant. And Robin Williams is always going to be Robin Williams. The cast got together and gelled. I think Sarah Michelle Geller was in that, if I recall correctly. Wonderful right. show. They canceled that show at CBS. And you CBS executives, I'm going to send you a strongly worded email. They canceled the crazy ones, but they kept the Millers there. And I saw a couple episodes of the Millers, and I go, you're keeping the Millers, but you're letting <laughs> Robin Williams and the crazy ones go. Was it a budget yeah. consideration? Because clearly a lot of money went into that show. With somebody of Robin Williams' stature, my God, we're all fallible, we're all human, and we're all vulnerable because I couldn't imagine them saying, eh, we'll let that go. But now they show the Millers over here. It just it <laughs> seems like a crazy decision to me. We're talking about Robin Williams. <laughs> yeah, well, 
I think you take your attention off of trying to figure out network decisions. I say you'll live a lot longer. And and all those executives that you're going to write an email to, forget it. They're on to other things. <laughs> They've been fired long ago. <laughs> they're on to other things. <laughs> they're not even there anymore. Okay. Long ago. <laughs> they're just some. Do you have, Jim, do you have the kind of sensibility that when you can watch a show, and I do not claim this as I have fairly good luck predicting the demise of, of sitcoms that I just don't think are going to work. A few of which have debuted lately there uh, and I'll miss the mark sometimes, but if you watch something, can you tell with one episode looking, eh, I don't think that's going to last long 13 episodes and they're out. Do you just get that gut reaction about what may or may not work on network television? Um, well, no, I, I don't because I don't watch a lot of network television, to be honest with you. I, um, I, I love to perform in it. But I'm not a, a great consumer of it. And uh, but I, I, even when I was watching a lot of network television, when there was only network television to watch back in the, the well, in the, the days when Happy Days was starting up, I, I, I was a rather bad judge of what was going to succeed. I remember it, talking about Happy Days when uh, when my mother's show Happy Days started. It was a single camera show, as I'm sure, you know, it was filmed like a like a movie or a uh, you know, without a live audience. Right. And it was that way for a couple of seasons. And then there was a discussion about, um, well, we were thinking about going uh, multi-cam and be in front of an audience and do it like all in the family or one of these shows. And I remember in my, my great wisdom of being 14 or 15 years old, thinking to myself, boy, that's not going to work. That's, that's the end. It's <laughs> so my record is pretty, yeah. pretty poor in predicting that. Yeah. Well, Gary's is pretty good. He'll see a show one time and he'll give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. and Just like the old Roman Coliseum. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes there's a wonderful show on now. I've become a fan. I didn't think it was going to make it called Ghosts on CBS. And I thought, eh, it's a little frivolous. I don't think it's going to make it. I was wrong. The show it's is fun. a hit. It's yeah. doing hmm. very well and it's becoming more nuanced. So uh, it has a lot to do with how much money somebody decides to spend behind promoting it, marketing it. I mean, there are plenty of, because you or I or America, we just never heard about it. You know, we didn't see it go by on the buses. We didn't hear people talking about it on the radio. We didn't see, uh, you know, talk about Manhattan. Manhattan is the place where, you know, you find out about everything that is for sale. Uh, by looking at the bus kiosks and, uh, you know, the, the signage in Times Square. And uh, that all costs money. So people have to make a bet on something. They have to really uh, put a lot of investment behind it or else well, it doesn't matter how good it is. We're, we're probably not going to find it. Jim Meskimen, we are always delighted to hear the mention of your name. You're an extraordinarily talented man, and we hope that you will come <laughs> visit with us again. Absolutely. Thanks so much for such a gracious interview. You guys are really swell, and I love talking with you. We'll do it oh, again. Good. We interviewed your mom. Tell her that Manson Mitchell said hello. <laughs> she she actually <laughs> called us children. Like, indeed. you know, thank you, children. I go, okay. I'm oh, on yeah. social security, but that's she all calls right. anyone anyone under anyone under about eighty five is a child to her. So that's 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 her. <laughs> all right. And she feels so she much, feels the Jen. same about you. She she loves you all. Okay. All right. Take all care. Right. Have a great weekend, everyone.